Welcome to Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. There's really no magical formula on how to succeed or to move up from supervisor to manager and from manager to partner other than make yourself so valuable that the organization can't do anything but promote you. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. That clip was from our guest for this episode, Clay Killinger. Usually, I mention some details about our guest's background in this initial introduction, but I really want to save that for the interview itself. To say that Clay has had a successful career would really be an understatement, but suffice it to say that it includes being a partner at a national accounting firm, as well as including executive management positions with big-name publicly traded companies and industry. You really will get a lot of value out of this episode if you're career-focused because Clay shares insights really all throughout the interview, not just in the final questions. If you do enjoy this episode, please visit us online as well at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, that's whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm excited to say that we recently became part of the affiliate program for Wiley CPA Excel, which is a CPA review course. So if you're considering certification, please visit our groups and certifications page there at whereaccountantsgo.com, where you can find the link to that affiliate program, as well as several other CPA review courses right there in the certification section. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Clay Killinger of San Antonio, Texas. Well, hello, Clay. For making the time for this interview, I realize time is our most valuable commodity, so I really appreciate you sharing it with the audience. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me today, and uh, welcome to your listeners today. Thank you. Well, for the audience, I invited Clay on the show to share his career journey with us, of course, but also some of his wisdom as well. As with several of our guests, he was suggested by a former guest. But I've also personally had the opportunity to hear one of his student presentations a few years back. And and honestly, to this day, I still remember what the point was of that talk. I don't want to give it all away, but let's just say Clay has worked with some of the biggest names in our profession, at least in Texas, in both public accounting and in industry, basically big four and publicly traded companies. I'm going to leave the details, Clay, for for you to share with the audience, but let's start at the beginning like we do with all the guests. What initially caused you to think about pursuing accounting as a possible career choice? What were some of those initial influences? Well, Mark, actually, when I started off in my college career, I, I didn't have an interest in accounting. So it is an interesting story on how I actually got there. So I was an undergrad at the University of Texas at San Antonio, and I was a business management major. So I I had actually started work 
I like to tell people I started work when I was 13 because I had a paper route in the Washington, <laughs> D.C. area. And, and these are the, this, is the old, this, this is the old school paper route where you had to market and solicit new customers. Okay, so you had the marketing function. That's as all as a 13-year-old, right? You had a marketing function. Then you had to order your newspapers. So, right, you had to have a draw. I actually sold newspapers as well in a hospital, so went door-to-door to a hospital. So you had to do some supply logistics. Then you actually had to do collections, and you had credit and collections because at that time you went door-to-door to collect your money. Then you had some treasury functions, and you had to store the money. And I had four <laughs> brothers who, who liked to borrow, quote-unquote, borrow money from me, which never got repaid because they knew where I, I had the cash. So you had you know, physical security of assets. And then, of course, you had to pay the paper company, and then you, you had to cycle from month to month. So I've been in business since I was 13. And so I was really interested in So I was a business management major because that's what I wanted to do and started my, like I said, college at UTSA. And I was in my junior year and business management undergrad required a little bit more than just your basic accounting 101 and 102. So it required some intermediate accounting and then you could take some electives in cost accounting. And I had a cost accountant professor at UTSA named Sherry Moore. Now, I don't know where she's gone and what she's done in her life, but I do remember her. And she, after a test one day, she said, hey, if you have some time after class, would you mind coming to my office? I want to talk to you about something. I said, sure. And so I went there and she said, you know, you really did well on my test. You've been doing really well on uh, my exams. And I pulled your records up and you are doing really, really well in school. And you do really well in accounting, but you're a business management major. And I said, yeah, I am. And she said, well, why business management? I said, well, you know, I'm interested in business. What I really want to do is I want to work for HEB when I get out of school hmm. because it's, it's, a, it's a business I could relate to, right? We all shop at a grocery store. It was well-respected. I had some conversations with the store managers, and they had a culture. You could even tell the culture at that time for that business was, you know, it was a culture of excellence. And I said, boy, I really want to work for a company like this. And so I told her that, and she said, well, you know, there's not a lot of people who can score as high as you did on my accounting exams. And you might want to consider going into accounting because it will broaden your options when you graduate. So you can go into public accounting and go into business. And I said, well, can I work for HEB? And she said, absolutely. It doesn't prohibit you from doing that. So at her advice, I then decided to start taking accounting courses and electives and ended up changing my major to accounting. And that's really, it's as crazy as it might seem, that one encounter and that one interaction really started me evaluating what a career in accounting would be. And that changed really, that person at that time really changed the course of my professional career. Now, there were a couple other individuals. It was kind of a a neat story because I was kind of the most naive student at UTSA. And I, all I wanted to do was get a job and, and work hard and be successful and, but never really had great aspirations. I just wanted to work hard and get a good paying job and and have a family and you know the things that everybody wants. We get to the my senior year. This is a true story now. Get to my senior year and it's the 
recruiting time, right? This is when all of the accounting firms and businesses like HEB are going to recruit, and they go out to campus, and they set up their interview times. And it's the beginning of the year, and it's also a time when you go with your you, – you, you plan some time with your counselor or somebody in the administration at the university to make sure you're going to graduate, right, that you have enough credits to graduate. So it's something that everybody has to do. And I'm sure your listeners are all going through some of this stuff and they've been to it before. So I'm sitting outside this office, right? And I'm sitting next to this woman and we start start up a conversation. Now she's going to graduate in December. I'm not graduating until May. And so she goes, well, what are are your majoring? And I said, oh, I'm majoring in uh, accounting. And she goes, well, that's funny, me too. I said, yeah, I really want to work for HEB. And she goes, oh, oh, that's a great company. And I said, well, who are you working for? And she goes, well, I'm going to start working for this company called Arthur Anderson. It's a public accounting firm. And honest to goodness, I, I'm not making this up, Mark. I said, Arthur Anderson, who are they? <laughs> and so she starts explaining it to me. And the you know, one of the big, at the big eight at that time, big eight accounting firms, it's public accounting and they do auditing and tax and this and that. And of course, all this is new to me because I was just concentrating on the actual technical aspects of accounting and not the business side. And I go, well, that's okay. That's interesting. But I really want to stick with HEB and I want to do this HEB thing. And she, then she says something once again, that's like this is profound thing that I've never forgotten. She goes, you know, the really cool part is if you work overtime, like if you work more than 10 hours a day, they actually give you $13 so you can buy your own dinner. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he says, yep, if you work 10 hours in a day, they're going to give you $13 cash so you can go buy dinner. Now, to a starving relatively poor college kid, I was like, you got to be kidding. That's unbelievable. I need to know more about this public accounting thing. This is great. And (laughs) so she hands me the name of someone in career planning and placement named Beverly Santos. Okay. So she was a director at UTSA. And some of your listeners might actually know Beverly because she'd been around. She's now retired. So I go, oh my gosh, okay, I'm, I'm going to immediately go and try to touch base with this woman. And so after I had my checking of my credits and whatever, so that I was going to graduate, I immediately go down to career planning and placement. And I said, I walked in, I said, I got to have an appointment. I want to get an appointment with Beverly Santos. And the person behind the counter is like, well, her schedule's very, very busy. We're in the middle of recruiting and she won't probably be able to meet with you for a couple of weeks. And I said, well, I need to meet with her today. I met with this woman. Her name's Nancy. And she said, I can make $13 a day if I work overtime on this public public accounting stuff. I really need to understand about this. She goes, well, I'm sorry. Her, her schedule is really, really busy. And we're starting to have this little interaction. And I'm you know, obviously, I'm conveying the sense of urgency. And we're having this discussion. At that time, Beverly is kind of walking in, and she goes, what, what's, what's going on here? And the person behind the counter says, well, Ms. Ms. Santos, this gentleman is trying to get an appointment with you, but your, your schedule is completely busy. And at which point I, said, you know, I kind of appealed to her and said, look, I really need to talk to you. I don't know anything about this public accounting stuff. And she goes, okay, okay. So she took me back right then, and she says, okay. You don't know much about this public accounting stuff. And she types my social security number, whatever, into the computer system. And 
she looks in and she goes, you're, you're this Clay Killinger guy. I said, yes, ma'am. And someone told him about this public accounting thing. And she goes, where have you been? What, what have you done? <laughs> I said, well, I'm, look, I just want to do this interview stuff. And she said, they are interviewing next week. Their interview schedules are completely full. But based on what I'm seeing, I'm going, if you pull your resume together, and I didn't know how to do a resume, but she gave me a book. She said, I want you to write this up and you need to do this tonight and give it to me. I will personally get this in front of all of the big four. Actually, it was only seven that recruited because Coopers and Libran did not interview at UTSA. So it was seven of the eight. She said, I'll personally hand this to each of the, the recruiters because I think based on your GPA that they're going to want to interview you. So, which of course she did and I did, and then I got interviews, and then I went back to her, and she goes, you know, I have seven interviews, and she goes, that's great. Do you know anything about interviewing? And I said, no. And she goes, well, do you have a suit and tie? And I said, no. <laughs> so she handed me this other book, and it was probably a lot of your listeners have picked it up, especially, you know, the first-generation college students. It's called Dress for Success. It was an old paperback. It's all dog-eared. And it talked about how you should dress, what type of suit you should buy. And the interesting thing, and this is absolutely true, it had a center section in there on how to tie a tie. My father <laughs> passed away when I was 14, so I didn't have any real true male influence on a day-to-day basis. I didn't know how to tie a tie, and I'm about ready to go to an interview in a week. So it actually had instructions on how to tie it. And to this day, I only know how to tie one knot. My entire career, I've only tied one knot, one way, and that's it. And it has lasted me my entire career. Now I don't have to wear a tie anymore. Then fast forward, interviews went great, got a lot of offers, and then ended up going with Arthur Anderson, not necessarily because of Nancy, because everybody was paying overtime, but because it was at that time what I thought was the largest and best public accounting firm. So it was quite an interesting ride there. But I got to tell you, that time at UTSA and my my experiences at UTSA, and I've done a lot of presentations there and I've presented elsewhere, it was magical to me. And I do believe there were a lot of angels at that place. And that's why I also give back both in in time and in talent and treasure to UTSA when I can because what it what it meant in my career. At, at least tell me that Arthur Anderson had the HEB account, or you had a chance to pitch him or something. <laughs> All right. Well, so then now you're getting into the other store because HEB was a privately held company out of Corpus Christi, and at the uh-huh. time they were audited by a company called Collier Johnson and Woods. It's a local accounting firm in Corpus Christi. So no, Arthur Anderson did not have the HEB account. And this is what I started in 1983. Now, two years later, HEB goes out for bid because Charles Butt is going to relocate the headquarters to San Antonio, Texas and move into the Arsenal building in downtown San Antonio. So they go out to bid. And they're requesting bids from all of the large accounting firms. Of course, this is an, an account that was highly interesting to me. And so I went to the office managing partner, a guy by the name of Jim Thaling at the time, and said, Jim, I'd really like to be on this proposal team. Now, I'm a supervisor. I am not a manager or a partner, obviously. So I've only been with the firm a couple of years. So I was on the engagement team. And yes, Mark, we did get the engagement. <laughs> 
And so I was on the HEB account for over 15 years, and I ended up being the partner in charge of the account when I was promoted to partner in 1997. So yes, with a full story goes full circle, and I actually did end up, in a way, working for Charles Button HEB. So you got you got a free dinner, and you still achieved your dream. So, <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you and public accounting work. I got a lot of free dinners because we worked a heck of a lot of overtime at that time. So I didn't have much time to think about. I didn't have much time to think about how I was going to spend that because we were working a tremendous amount of overtime. You work hard in public accounting, but it's worth it. <laughs> It's funny the things that influence us, you know, early in our careers like that. You mean they're going to pay for dinner? <laughs> it was That's a, a great deal. story. And then started off with at, at Arthur Anderson, and and that was a great time as well, Mark. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm going to fast forward through that a little bit because you you do have so much good history to talk about here. You were with Anderson a little under twenty years, left as as a partner, you know, prior to. Anderson dissolving, unfortunately. Tell us about your success in moving up. And, and I know it, it may seem like you're being egotistical, but in the interest of sharing how you got there, because I, I think there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast that want to go you know, along that path in public accounting. What do you feel served you well? You know, what, what did you do that helped you move up during that time? Well, I did a lot of stuff. And I never shied away from a challenge. Okay. I always asked for additional responsibility when there were assignments, job assignments that people didn't particularly want to do. And those would be defined as a lot of job assignments, especially in the San Antonio offices, which is where I started. I ended up, my last three years were in the Houston office, but most of my career was in San Antonio. And that required a lot of travel. So whether it was travel to Corpus Christi or South Texas or anywhere across the United States when Arthur Anderson needed, you know, additional resources. Now, travel is, uh, you know, it's not the most desirable thing in the world. It sounds really good, but when you're on the road for a long time, it can, it can really wear you down. I started off in audit and spent time getting a good understanding of how to audit companies and understanding business that way. And then there were other business advisory service lines like bankruptcy and what we used to call corporate recovery, which was bankruptcy and restructuring, litigation support, which is assisting attorneys in disputes and dispute resolution. I spent a couple of years in insurance claim management because I worked on the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Now, to some of your listeners, they may not recognize that, but this this happened at the end of the 1980s when an oil tanker ran aground in Prince William Sound, and there was two years worth of, it it, it was sort of like this BP Macondo well thing, but it happened, you know, decades before. So I spent a couple of years in Alaska. I spent a couple of years in corporate recovery or bankruptcy, spent a couple of years in litigation support, and then at the end of my career, the last three years, I was doing some what I call maybe forensic accounting, but it was sort of crisis management accounting for waste management in Houston, where they had some trouble with their accounting system in, in terms of cash and intercompany accounts. And it took us a good two and a half years, three years to get it cleaned up. So I did a lot of work that 
other people, it, it wasn't routine and not let the audit side is routine, but I just, I always took on challenges within the firm and it made me very valuable in that I just got a lot of skill sets that I, that I built up over the years. And without that, I don't know if I would have really been that successful at just being a mainline auditor of just auditing companies for 10, 20 years. Not that I would say that I would get bored with it, but I enjoyed the challenge of doing other things or the challenge of doing other things. And uh, I think it served me well. And so when the time came to be promoted to partner, it's almost like they had to do it. And that's what everybody would kind of counsel you on is there's really no magical formula on how to succeed or to move up from supervisor to manager and from manager to partner other than make yourself so valuable that the organization can't do anything but promote you because they don't want to have you leave. So it's you're almost like forcing their hand and you want to set yourself apart, obviously in a good way, not in a bad way, but you want to set yourself apart in a good way where your employer, whoever that may be, says, my gosh, I got to keep this person. They're just too valuable to not promote. And when you get into that position, and it's not something that you do, you think about on a day-to-day basis, but you'll know, you'll know in the lifetime of your career when you're presented with an opportunity that is going to be hard and it's going to take some sacrifice, but at the end, you're going to be better off for it because you're going to develop skill sets that no one else has. Why? Because they didn't have the experience. So grab as much of that as you can as you're going through life and at the end of 5, 10, 15 years or a couple of decades, you will have created your what I call an intangible asset on your personal balance sheet that is so valuable that a lot of people are going to want you to be on their engagement or on their team. So that's really the secret sauce is don't turn anything down. There's just going to be a lot of sacrifice you know, along the way, but I'll tell you, it's, it, that's how it works for me. I wasn't smart enough to do it any other ways other than just work pretty hard at it. Hmm. You know, a similar theme has come up on other podcasts about making yourself available and, and saying, you know, yes to the, the difficult assignments, but you're adding to it. I, I like that because ultimately what you're doing is, is you're making yourself invaluable, you know, something that they can't live without. <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of sense to that. And you get a lot of experience with a lot of different people too, and don't burn any bridges. Make a, it's like develop your personal Rolodex or your personal contact list. And now we have LinkedIn, I guess it's not Rolodex anymore. So that's how old I am, but you (laughs) you develop your LinkedIn network and always do good work and people will remember you. They really will. So that's another invaluable and and very important asset. Hmm. Now, I have to ask about this because it's just an obvious question. You were at Arthur Anderson not too long before the shutdown. What what can you tell us about the atmosphere internally back then? and What lessons came out of that experience? What challenges were there? What what can you tell us about that time? It was a pretty dynamic time in public accounting where the business advisory services or this consulting services were making a tremendous amount of money. All of the public accounting firms were using 
their audit clients to help develop business consulting services or tax planning services and things like that. And I would say it was at that point, it was a golden age of accounting and businesses were pretty dynamic and doing a lot of things and pushing the envelopes on new products or new ways to look at things, new ways to monetize their assets or their business strategy. Enron was one of them. And it's not that it was just Enron. There were others. So there were a lot of companies that pushed the envelope. It was almost like the wild, wild west. And people were making a ton of money. So everything, everything was really good. But people pushed the envelope. And getting into the nuances of what happened and who was responsible for what and why, it's difficult to know. And people get defensive, especially on, you know, if you're on the Arthur Anderson side, you're defensive of Arthur Anderson. If you're on the Enron side, you're defensive of Enron. If you're outside of that, somebody had to blame for, is it a business failure? Is it an audit failure? Who knows what? But as we've fast forwarded and, and and got through this. It was just an unfortunate time. And then you get the United States government and the Department of Justice involved. And we see that today with the Department of Justice involved (laughs) in their things. And that's a wild card because it becomes, it takes on a life of its own. And we see that today. We've seen it in, in other Department of Justice investigations. They go into areas that may not have ever been intended to go to. And whenever that happens, it's rarely, rarely ever is it a good outcome. It's always, mostly it's a a devastating outcome. And and that's what happened with Arthur Anderson and Enron and several, several other businesses at the time. And there were some bad players and there were some individual events that were certainly not good. The one that comes to mind is the destruction and shredding of documents which in, in a litigious situation is certainly not allowable and it's certainly not good. That happened, and obviously that was you know one key event. Probably in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that significant, but it was something tangible that people could grab onto, and, and that was something that should clearly not have happened, and then there, therefore people get punished for that event because maybe they can't get punished for other events, but... I will tell you this, though, Mark, in the end, as we fast forward out of it, very, very few people were really permanently damaged as part of it. There were a lot of us that had to take a step back. And the lesson that I learned out of that is, you know, sometimes you're going to have to take a step back before you take two steps forward. And if you're good, if you take the high ground and you continue to do the things that made you successful in the past, then you will survive. And you not only survive, you'll flourish. And so as I look back at some of my fellow partners, certainly the managers and the seniors and the staff at the time, which are now all moved up in public accounting or have gone on to very, very successful careers in business, there may be a handful of people who were really permanently damaged and affected by Enron and the downfall of Arthur Anderson. But in the end, I would say substantially all, or a very, very large majority of them, went on to very successful careers, and, I w- and, and mine was one of them. So everybody's going to have a setback in their life. This one just happened to be a pretty big setback that affected you know, a few thousand people, but almost everybody survived, and they not only survived, 
they really flourished. And so they relied on the things that got them there in the first place. And, and it was something that, uh, you know, it was an experience maker and we all learn from it and we, and we move forward. Now that's, that's a good point about, you know, sometimes you have to take a step back because I, I think earlier in our careers, we sort of had this picture of really a, a straight march up. You know, it, the number of years in each position may be different, but, you know, your, your staff and then your senior accountant, industry or public, you know, and then you're some type of supervisor and manager. And, and even if you move organizations, it's for a higher position. And really, that's that's not how careers always work. Actually, we, we had a, the CEO for CPS Energy on the show here a few months ago, very successful individual, Paula, and she talks about a couple lateral moves. And, and really, although they were lateral, she was strategic about it. I think there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. That's that's a, a really good point. It's not always straight up. You, a lot of times, it's what you make of it, too. <laughs> well, that, that's right. Yeah, you, it's that cliche. It's, a, well, if you're handed a lemon, make lemonade, that type of thing. But if you stay at it, and that's, there's, there's pro, you probably can have entire podcasts or entire books written on leadership attributes and what really is, okay, well, if I just knew the secret of here's what you have to have every day and this is going to make you successful, if I were to pull one attribute out, it would be grit. Mm-hmm. And there are books written on grit. And it's hard, kind of hard to define exactly what that is, but maybe it's this tenacious attitude of I'm not going to quit. I'm going to stay at and keep at the things that got me to where I'm going. And I'm not, I'm not going to compromise my values. And I'm going to live life strategically every day in my career to, to move myself forward and evaluate other opportunities. Now, you know, it's an interesting, this gets into another interesting discussion topic of career changing and, and people who move from job to job and place to place. And, and that happens a lot today. It didn't happen in my career. Actually, I've only had like three, if you include the paper routes, I, I worked for papers, newspapers, and then I, I worked in a, uh, for Red Lobster. I worked in a restaurant when I was going to college. And I worked for Arthur Anderson. Anderson went under and I worked for Valero Energy. And then Valero Energy spun off CST Brands. So I'm not going to say that was real career change because it really was part of Valero. So that's only four. And that's, I got two jobs in college. That's only four <laughs> employers. Now, within those organizations, kind of obviously moved around and did a lot of different things. In today's world, there are a lot of people that are moving from job to job and place to place. And it's a phenomenon that a lot of employers are recognizing that how are we going to keep these high-value employees? And it, it is a trend with younger people today to move and jump from place to place. And I call it professional frogger. You remember that game frogger where you jump from log to log and you try to you know move across the the water. Oh yeah. And, you know that type of thing. And that's the success is moving. And 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 maybe it came from the frogger game, but that's what a lot of people are doing today. They jump on this one, then they jump on another one because it's going this way. And oh, here comes a real fast one, you know. And they jump on that one, and it's the alligator. And all of a sudden, it goes under, and they jump on something else. It was not what I did, and things are different today. But I I would counsel a more strategic approach, and maybe a little a little, a little more forethought in terms of evaluating 
what opportunities you might take. There's a lot of individuals, and they've worked for me, they have a true sense of urgency of getting to an executive level, and they'll do anything they can to get there as quickly as possible. And sometimes the journey to the executive level, whether it's in public accounting or in finance or within any type of organization, it's not a sprint. It really is a marathon. Now, there are some people that move up really, really fast, and they're pretty incredible people, and it's amazing. But for most of us, you know, it's a it's a marathon. It's a it's a long journey, and if you just keep applying yourself at it, you will be successful. So I, I just it's not what I did if you're jumping around, but but people tend to do it these days, and and I guess you can get there both ways. Hmm. That is a good point. I want to make sure we talk about you know your career in industry because the, the time at Valero and and then CST Brands, and honestly, I, I'm afraid if. If I direct that too much, I may miss some of the better points. So, you know, out of your time that you spent there, what do you feel like it's important for the audience to know about your time with Valero and CST and your experience and and that kind of thing? Well, I've been, we started off talking about the almost miraculous chain of events that occurred to get into public accounting and... I won't say that they were the exact same way in terms of getting into Valero, but they were somewhat similar. You know, at that time, Arthur Anderson is struggling, and it's pretty evident that there's going to be some significant restructuring, if not the whole firm go go out of business, which eventually what happened. This was right after 9-11, so the World Trade Centers had been attacked. We're going into a worldwide recession. Arthur Anderson's struggling with Enron. Partners are leaving, and I soon found my, found myself in San Antonio of needing to find another job. Unfortunately, at the time, Mark, I was also going through a divorce. I'd been out of town for the last you know three years from time to time, and my marriage failed. I also had a small child, and they were going to live in San Antonio. So I found myself in a recession and I needed a job in San Antonio and I probably was not going to be employed by Arthur Anderson. So it was a pretty dark time. And Mm -hmm. at that point, I had made a few phone calls to find out if there were opportunities at some of my clients, which there were not. And I knew of some people at Valero because I'd worked on the account several years back. I knew the CFO I knew the vice president controller, and I knew the chairman and CEO, Bill Greehe. And I gave them a call. They were going through a merger with Ultramar Diamond Shamrock, and I told them my situation. I needed a job. And the response I got almost immediately was, when can you start? And I said, well, I can, I can start next Monday. And they said, great. And I remember <laughs> talking with Mr. Greehe, and he just said, yeah, we got a place for a guy like you, but look, I don't hire in vice presidents. I hire, you know, you have to earn yourself, you earn your way at Valero. And if you do, we're going to promote you and you'll be successful, but we need a guy like you. And I remember asking him, I said, well, do I need to produce a, a resume? And he goes, nah, you don't need a resume. I know who you <laughs> And then he looked at, and then about a few seconds later, he goes, well, those guys in HR, they always require that type of stuff. So you better put one together, but, but why don't you start on Monday? So I did, and I did have an opportunity to, I knew going in, 
I would have an opportunity to be the controller when the controller would retire. But part of this, Mark, I had to take a 50% pay cut, Hmm. which really was not much of a decision to me because I wanted to be in the city where my daughter was going to grow up and I wanted to spend time with her. And, And I knew that Valero was a great organization, had a great culture, a commitment to excellence, and it had super people there that were really, really smart and people that I like to associate with. So I did get that opportunity. And a year later, the controller did retire and I did get promoted into that position. And at that point, Boy Valero was just blowing and going and acquiring and got myself on a lot of the acquisition teams and worked on a lot of... So we acquired a refinery in Louisiana. We acquired a refinery in Aruba. We acquired a, eventually acquired a business in the United Kingdom. So they were multi-billion dollar acquisitions throughout the years. And I, I worked on the acquisition team and primarily worked with an attorney. At the time, her name was Kim Bowers, and eventually she remarried to Kim Lubell. And that ended up being my boss at at CST, but I developed a great network of connections inside Valero as well as outside, obviously. And we had a lot of fun. We worked really hard. And when Valero was going through its evaluation spinoff transaction of the retail side of the house, Kim was going to be the CEO. And I knew that it was going to be a fairly... So at the time, Valero is a Fortune 20 company. And this, I mean, it's right, right behind AT&T in terms of the amount of revenues on the Fortune 500. And the retail side, when it spun out, it was going to be a Fortune 250 company. So, and it needed a chief financial officer, and I was aspiring to become one. The CFO at Valero, his name is Mike Siskowski, one of the greatest guys that I think I've ever worked with. I did not anticipate him retiring anytime soon. And this was four years ago. He's still there. So I was right on that one. He had not retired, (laughs) but he's a great guy to work with and work for, but I didn't anticipate him leaving anywhere. And that doesn't mean I wouldn't have other opportunities at Valero. and And I think I would have had, but I wanted to be a CFO and this was an opportunity. And so I asked Bill Klesi, who was the chairman and CEO at the time, and Kim Lubell, if I could be her CFO. And she said, yes. And we spun off. And that's really how I got the position. I positioned myself and then I, I asked for it. And it was, it was a lot of hard work and it was certainly challenging in different ways because the CFO seat is a lot different than the controller seat. And it, it requires a, a lot of different skill sets, if, if you will, than just the controllership job, but was successful at doing that. And Kim and I, and we had a couple of other executives that, that spun off from Valero as well. We worked really hard at building that business for the first three years, and then we had some activists get involved in the stock and ended up selling the company to a Couchard out of Montreal, Canada. But we did have a an over 70% increase in the stock price, so the, the shareholders made out very, very well. It was a very successful business. And it's kind of bittersweet because I, I, I wish we would have been able to continue to grow and to develop that business. It was a lot of fun, but that's not how business all that works all the time. So, so you got to develop these networks, Mark, whether you're public accounting, whatever business you're in, and then even inside the company, because 
people move on, they do other things, and companies spin off, they grow, they merge. And so the more things you do, whether you're public accounting or whether you're within the business and all these projects that you do and the M&A team, and it's, it's not easy work and it's demanding, but boy, you make yourself valuable and you just really open the door to all these opportunities. And that's really what happened to me. So it's, uh, Valera was quite a ride and CST was as well. You know, we, we talked about this a little in our pre-interview discussion, but you just alluded to it. So, so I wanted to discuss it as well. We both read the statistic that's floating around out there that the average time for a CFO in a CFO role is less than three years. And you just said that it was a much different role than being a controller. I'm paraphrasing a little bit there. But what do you feel like the younger professional should know about the differences? You know, what, what are some of the challenges that come along with being a CFO versus a controller? What, what should people know about that? Well, I think the, the big difference is it's not as technical. So the CFO role is not as technical as the controllership role. There are some technical aspects of it in terms of finance, return on investment computations, trading multiples, evaluating acquisitions in terms of internal rates of return, more of the financial side as as opposed to some of the technical aspects of accounting and tax. Obviously, there's the taxation is all technical. Keeping financial statements in accordance with SEC rules is also very, very technical. And there are some strategic aspects of the controllership role, the tax role, and what I call the treasurer role. But what's different at the CFO level is the interpersonal aspects of dealing with analysts on Wall Street and shareholders, investor relations aspects. So you're going to be dealing with the individual owners of the company. And make no mistake, they not only own the company, but they control it through their vote. And they do have a lot of power. And so they hold a lot of cards and they influence you in a lot of different ways. And some of those ways are by voting an activist in to change your strategy if they don't like the strategy that you're doing or they don't like the results that you're getting and the time that you're getting them. So Wall Street doesn't have a lot of patience. And if Wall Street doesn't have a lot of patience, that means your board of directors aren't going to have a lot of patience. And unfortunately, strategy and the implementation of a corporate strategy, especially upon a spin, it takes some time. And sometimes Wall Street doesn't doesn't give you that much time. So you have to kind of balance, here's the strategy that the company's trying to implement, and it's going to take some time. And then when you go to Wall Street, their time frame is every three months, right? Every quarter, you get a report <laughs> card. And if they don't like the report card, they're going to let you know about it. And and they do tend to speak their mind. So especially on one-on-one calls, they don't hold a lot of things back. So you're going to have to have a pretty stiff backbone because they're, they're going to come at you. And that's something that's completely different than if you're a treasurer or if you're a controller or if you're in the tax area. Hmm. Okay. Okay. There are so many things <laughs> that we could talk about further. To summarize it, though, I guess, what have you most enjoyed? about your career? Because you've done so much. What have you really enjoyed? Well, I really enjoy working with 
extremely intelligent men and women. And I have had the luxury, whether it's at Arthur Anderson or whether it's at Valero or at the, you know, certainly at the leadership levels of CST, I have worked with what I think are some of the most brilliant and intelligent men and women in business. And when you get those type of people in a room and they develop strategy, it's going to be a challenging strategy and you're going to have so many opportunities to do some really neat, creative things. And that's what I was exposed to. And I really, really enjoyed it. So I've had these challenges and I have these opportunities for the 35 years that I've been in my professional life. And that's what I liked the most. And, and you miss it. So now that it's mm-hmm. done and I've been evaluating what my next chapter is, the things I look back on is it's not about money and compensation anymore. And really it wasn't that, it wasn't that, that hasn't been part of the equation for many, many years. It was sort of the challenges and, and, and adding value and surrounding yourself with really, really brilliant people. But now that those, I'm not around that, that's, that's my number one that's what I'm really hunting for and searching for is to surround myself with good people because that's, that's the thing that I like the most. And that's the thing that I miss the most when I'm not in business, if that answers that question. Sure. Sure. Well, I think that's a good point, or this is a good point rather for us to move to the final three questions <laughs> that I ask every podcast guest. Because that's very insightful. The first of the, the three questions I ask everybody is usually the easiest. What's been your proudest moment in your career? My proudest moment is, and I don't want to get, kind of get too sappy, but I was the UTSA Alumnus of the Year in 2001. And it was nice because I was being recognized by my university. And I, like I said, I do, I do a lot of stuff for the university. And, but what it allowed me to do is in a public forum is to thank all the men and women who really shaped my life. And they were all there. And so it wasn't, for me, it wasn't as much about me as it was for my ability to call them out in a public setting and thank them. Now, it's not that I hadn't thanked them before. It's not that we haven't had one-on-ones where I haven't told them how valuable they were to me. But for me, it was sort of a, an ability in a public setting, in a business setting in San Antonio, because there were a lot of people there, must have been a couple thousand, is to honor all of them, because all of them shaped the tapestry of my life and my career, and I am just so grateful and so blessed that they were part of it. And that included my wife and obviously my kids, but all of the business leaders and the men and women that came through there. And and that was just part proud. It was kind of one of probably one of my grateful moments as well, Mark. So that's the thing that comes, that's the number one thing that kind of comes to my mind. Hmm. That, that is a special opportunity when you get to do that in public. It really is. We've talked a lot about success, but tell us about a mistake you've made. And of course, what you learn from it. And the bigger, the better. We like it when our guests share the, the really <laughs> colossal mistakes. <laughs> well, yeah. Now, these are not like setup questions because, you know, in our pre-interview, you, you let me know you were going to ask these things. And so I have had a failed marriage. I mentioned that earlier. I, if I look back, I'd probably say it was 
kept my biggest failure. I'm not saying it was a mistake, but a big failure. And I moved on. My previous wife has moved on. She's still here in town and we're still good friends. And we've grown, we've participated in a partnership and grown our, our, and our daughter has matured and she's well adjusted and everything worked out. So even though things were really, really dark at that time, we both had the right attitude towards it and we made it work. And that's, it doesn't matter whether it's in your personal or business life, you know, that, that is a pretty, that's a big deal. And it's unfortunate, but over 50% of your listeners, if they get married, they're going to go through the same thing. That's just a fact. That's, that, that, those are facts and realities. And, and I would say you can go down two paths when you do that, and it's a really dark time and it's a bad time. You can make the best of it, and you can fast forward, and things will really, really go a lot more positive for you. Or you can take a, a more darker path and harbor that bitterness in your heart for a long time, and that's probably not going to work out well for you. So, and like I said, more than 50% of your listeners, people listening to this podcast that get married, and this is just a statistic, right? This is, they're going to go through the same thing. It's probably one of my biggest disappointments in life. Now, I've also had some big disappointments in investing. I do my own personal investing, and I've I've had two individual situations where I've lost over a million dollars, and I'm not kidding, and it hurts. Uh, oh. That's a lot of money, and it was a big portion of my net worth, And but it was my fault. It wasn't anybody else's fault, and I'd say the same thing you know, in terms of the marriage deal, and that's, you got to take ownership for your mistakes, how big they are and colossal they are, and some of them could be really big. You can lose a lot of money. You can choose a wrong career, but but you know what? If you own up to it, and it's nobody else's really responsibility other than your own, and you take responsibility and correct it, you can get your feet back under you, and you can move forward. And in both of those cases, I have moved forward and survived. So, hmm. Well, thank you for being so open about that. That's, that is very valuable. That's come up a few times. Actually, it's one of the first few podcasts about it's not so much about the mistake. It's about owning up to it and moving forward. So hmm. thank you. Thank you. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? This is one I also gave some thought about. And for people who know me, they know that I've lived my life and my career with a very high sense of urgency. <laughs> so I'm a, <laughs> I'm a high energy guy. And there's good aspects and bad aspects of that. But one of my issues, especially early on, is it was hard for me to differentiate of, you know, I struggled with how to address problems because every time there was a problem, I addressed it with the same sense of urgency. (laughs) So it didn't matter how big or how small they were. And so sometimes I tended to overreact on things and it wasn't commensurate with the situation and what it was. And I had an old partner of mine pulled me aside one time and I don't know what I was struggling with. And he goes, I've observed something about you and I just want you to think about it. He says, what you really need to know, and this was his advice. He goes, when a problem or a situation presents itself to you, you need to know the difference between a problem and an expense. When things happen in your life, a problem is a medical report that you can't fix or something that's going to significantly affect your life. 
that's a problem. An expense is a flat tire, a broken windshield, a house that burns down to the ground. It seems like it's a problem, but that's just an expense. And he said, as soon as you can differentiate between these two things, you're going to have a lot more peace in your life. And that's not bad advice for an individual or even for a corporation. So I'm not saying that I apply that all the time, but I try to remind myself when things get tough or something presents itself, I try to ask myself, you know, is this just an expense, which is something that you're going to get through, you won't even remember it two or three years from now? Or is this a problem that you're really going to need to really address maybe with some outside help. So that, that was probably the best advice he ever got. Wow. You know, I, I know I'm the biggest winner on these things, getting to record them and, you know, getting all the advice and just insights from our, our guest. But that's one I'm definitely going to need to put into, uh, into use in my own life, knowing the difference between a problem and expense, because I'm certainly guilty of that. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Thank you very much. That That's perfect for us to, to wrap this up on. I, I really appreciate you sharing your time with us, Clay. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. The, the hour went by really, really quick. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, for our audience, this has been another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accounts Go podcast. If you haven't yet visited our home website, please do so. You can find the show notes for this episode, of course, but all our previous episodes as well. That website is whereaccountsgo.com. Once again, it's whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Clay, do you have any final thoughts or any final words of wisdom for the audience? Well, I do. I'm going to quote at least one or two verses from a song called Life's a Dance by John Michael Montgomery. And I'm not going to quote all of them, but it says, The longer I live, the more I believe. You do have to give before you receive. There's a time to listen. There's a time to talk. And you might have to crawl even after you walk. I've been knocked down by the slamming door, and I picked myself up and came back for more. You see, life's a dance you learn as you go. Sometimes you lead, and sometimes you follow. Don't worry about what you don't know, because life's a dance you learn as you go. That's it. That's beautiful. You are the first guest to quote song lyrics, and you're a true Texan. It's it's country western. I love it. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Clay, and thank you to the audience for joining us. We'll see everybody next week. There's more to come.